All right, one other announcement, guys, I forgot really quick, is the men's retreat is coming up November 2nd um, and, no, not 2nd, 4th and 5th. Um, Are any of you guys signed up to go on the men's retreat yet? I am. Ryan is. Okay. So here's the deal. If you're like, yeah, first of all, I would only go if my dad was going and your dad isn't going, I volunteer to be your honorary dad for the weekend, okay? So I'd love to have you come on the men's retreat. It'd be a lot more fun if you were there for me. Um, So guys, if you want to go on the men's retreat, let me know, and um, it'd be a lot of fun. I wasn't supposed to be a joke. I don't know why everyone laughs at my comments as if they're jokes. Who? What? 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 I always have a joke. No, my invitation to go on the men's retreat is not a joke. It's it's a real invitation. Okay, guys, here we go. If you need a Bible, grab one. It is not the walk of shame. No, it is not. Not at all. Um, anybody else need a Bible? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's... Go grab a Bible. It's no problem. No problem. Grab a couple of them. We're in Galatians. That's right. Galatians chapter 3. Okay, so here's the first question for you guys. What do you tend to say when you really want someone to believe what you're saying? Really? I swear. Anything else? Seriously. Anything else? I'm telling the truth. Why do we have these why do we have these sayings? Like why do people say, I swear, I promise, really, seriously, I'm telling the truth. Why do we say these things? To up the credit of what they're saying right then, maybe. But why do we have them? Yeah. Right, because we say things that aren't always trustworthy, right? We, you know, seriously, I promise I didn't put anything in your drink. Just try it. Right? We do things that make us a little bit less credible. And so when we want people to believe what we're saying, we have to really emphasize it, right? We have to say, no, really, I swear, I promise, you know, you should do this. Okay? Do you have friends that promise you things, but you would never really trust them? Okay. Well, (laughs) this is kind of how our world functions, right? What do we do in our world in order to ensure that people are going to do what they say they do? What what sorts of things have we invented to make sure that people do what they say they're going to do? (laughs) Yeah, we have lie detector things, right? (laughs) Okay. What else? I can't, I didn't hear Oh, okay, yeah, we've got these, like, crazy brotherhood bonds where we, like, spit in our hand and cut ourselves, and, yeah, okay. Anything else? Surveillance cameras. Yeah, we have surveillance cameras. Pinky swear, okay, yeah. Okay, so moving on down the line, we get to something where, like, we start signing documents, right? And so when we sign a... Whoever's doing that with their pen, can we... Let's stop Thank you. Yes, we can hear you. Yes, we can all hear you. Thank you. Um, uh, we sign documents, right, that, that say, I promise I'm going to do this, and here's what's going to happen if I don't. 
Okay, so like we buy a house, we open a bank account, we get onto Facebook, you know, we, those are all documents. When you click that little button, you've just signed something saying that you promised to do this and they're gonna, they promise to do this, okay? And this is important for today because we're going to be talking about the nature of God's promise and his covenant to his people, okay? So today we're in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to do a big chunk, 3.15 all the way to 4.7. And I'm going to try to make it as understandable as possible. Because when I read this, as, and this isn't to sound boastful, but when I read this passage as someone who's graduated college, gotten two master's degrees, has a little bit more life under his belt, I read 315 to 4.7 and I go, what the heck is Paul talking about? Because <laughs> it's not easy to understand. So we're going to do our best to make it understandable. And the first way we're going to do that is by doing this. We're going to talk about what the Galatian problem was. Okay, so we, we've already admitted there's, there's a lot of problems in Galatia, right? So we want to say, what is the big deal? What's the hang-up in Galatia? What are they believing that's wrong? Well, first of all, our history as God's children is a long one, right? This last year, we started studying in Genesis in the summer, all the way back at the beginning, and at the beginning, we have God creates humans, they sin, and then God chases after humans to reestablish that connection. And who's the one he goes after to establish that connection with? You guys remember? Which famous guy does he go after? Yeah, Joseph? Abraham, right? So he goes after Abraham. And God gives Abraham a promise. And he promises to bless him and his children. Okay, so God promises to bless Abraham and we're going to use the word that Galatian uses here. It's the word offspring. Okay? You guys know the word offspring, it just means children. Okay? So God promises to bless Abraham and his offspring. Does that sound remotely familiar from this summer? Kind of a big deal. Right? And he calls it what? What do we call this promise? Yeah, we call it a covenant. Let me tell you a little bit about this covenant really quick. This covenant is a promise that God makes, and he makes it in the way that they used to make covenants. And they, this is how he does it. He tells Abraham, go get a bunch of animals, cut those animals in half, put one half over here, put the other half over here. And the way that this covenant used to work is that both parties of the covenant, the two people who are making a covenant together, would walk between those animals as a way of saying, this is how firm I'm holding this covenant, where if I break the covenant, I give you permission to do to me what you did to these animals. Okay? That's how serious it is. That I'm going to be cut in half and destroyed if I break this covenant, okay? But the crazy thing is, back in Genesis 15, when God makes this covenant with Abraham, here's what happens. He makes the covenant, they cut the animals, they put them on either side, and Abraham has this, like, magical deep sleep come over him, and God shows up in the form of a torch and a fire pot, and God goes between the animals, and Abraham doesn't. Which means, God is saying... Abraham, if you break this covenant, let me be destroyed. Which is absolutely crazy. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But that's the covenant that God makes with Abraham, okay? But then, Abraham tells 
or God tells Abraham that he has to be circumcised, and then 430 years later comes the law. Where would we look for the law in the Bible? You guys know where the law would be found? It's like, it's given to Moses, and then like the books following like Deuteronomy Okay, so yeah, it's given to Moses. It's given 430 years after Abe. Okay, 430 is a long time, given to Moses. And it's given in Exodus. That's when we hear the story of him getting the law. And then the laws themselves are written out in Leviticus. Well, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Okay? And the big idea is this. The Galatians are being taught that God gave a promise to bless Abraham, but 430 years, things changed a little bit. And here's how they changed. Now, Four hundred thirty years later, now God will bless those who obey the law. Okay, so God's going to promise He's just going to bless everybody, but now He's only going to bless those who obey the law. But we get down here to this topic of the offspring. Who is this offspring that we're talking about? And in Galatia, they were being taught that the offspring, and this is what most people would have believed, were the Jews. Okay? The Jews are Abraham's offspring, right? They're his kids. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. This is who Abraham's offspring is. And they would say in Galatia, well, now that Jesus has come, anyone can be the offspring of Jesus so long as they obey the law. So this is kind of a big thing. So God will bless those who obey the law. And now, the offspring is anyone who obeys the law. So what does this mean for the Galatians? Well, what this means for the Galatians is that they need to obey the law They need to obey the law in order to get God's blessing. Does this flow of thought make sense to you? Okay, so here's what they're saying. They're saying, the promise said that God would bless Abraham and his offspring. However, the law made it so now that God is going to bless those who obey the law. So now it's not a matter of being Abraham's child. It's a matter of obedience to the law. Okay, which is why now anyone who obeys the law is the offspring that God was talking about back here, which means for the Galatians, they need to obey the law in order to get God's blessing. Okay, so this is what was being taught in Galatia. Now let's open our Bibles to Galatians 3.15, and we're going to read the first three verses here. And Paul, Paul's going to point out the problem with this thinking, and I want you to listen really carefully and see if you can pick out what the problem is. I'm going to ask you what the problem is. Okay, so he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, there's a lot of big words there, but what he's saying is this. 
even with a normal human contract, like not a contract between God and humans, which is what we're talking about here, just a normal contract. You buy a house, you open a bank account. In a normal human contract, no one takes that contract and says, well, it doesn't really count anymore, or changes it after it's been put into place. Does that make sense? And what Paul is really talking about here is he's using the example of a will. Okay, think about with you, when your parents die, they left a will, no one can really go and say, well, that will doesn't really count. Or, well, I know that they said this, but let's change the will so that it means this. You can't do that, all right, after they've died. Now the promises, verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham, we're talking about the promises over here, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What's the problem that he's pointing out here? Anybody pick up on it? What's the problem with Galatians thinking? Yeah. The promise is made before the law. Okay. The promise is made before the law. That's a big deal. And what's he saying about covenants? What can you not do with covenants? You can't break them and you can't change them. Okay? You can't just go changing covenants. But look at what the Galatians were being taught. The Galatians are being taught that the covenant was changed by... The law, right? The covenant said, I will bless Abraham and his offspring. I promise to do this. But the law says, I will bless only those who obey the law. So what they're saying is, oh, yeah, God started with a covenant, but then everything changed when the law came. Okay, you can't change a will after it's already been signed. Think about this example. Let's say there's a man who has two daughters. One is quite rich. She married a rich husband, and the other one is quite poor. He writes a covenant or a will saying that he wants to give more money to the poor daughter and less money to his rich daughter so that he'll take care of the poor daughter. But while he's on his deathbed, their situations change. Maybe the poor daughter wins the lottery. The rich daughter goes bankrupt. No one can change what he's written. The the now rich daughter is still going to get more money. And the now poor daughter is still going to get less money because you can't just change a covenant once it's been written. So he's saying, you can't do this. You can't just change it so that God blesses those who obey the law. There's a problem there. All right? So God promises to bless Abraham and his offspring, and that promise continues until we get to the offspring. And who does he say the offspring is in this section? Jesus, okay? So he says, it's not offsprings, meaning many people. It's offspring, meaning one person. And so this promise wasn't talking about all the Jews. It was talking about Jesus. It was talking about the one who was going to come and be the one who fulfilled the law, okay? Which means that now to be the offspring of Abraham... It's not those who obey the law, it's those who believe in 
Jesus. So Paul is correcting the way that they're thinking about this. Okay? So if the offspring is those who believe in Jesus, in order for the Galatians to get the blessing, how are they going to get the blessing? How are they going to get the blessing? Yeah, they're going to believe in Jesus. Okay, so they need to believe in Jesus to get God's blessing. Now, as you look at this, what question comes to mind as you think about why God did what he did? Is there any question that comes to your mind as you look at this? What do you think the Galatians are thinking? What do you think the Jews down here are thinking when they look back at their history? Okay, has the covenant changed, though? The covenant has always been, I'm going to bless you, no matter what. So the covenant hasn't changed, but notice where the arrows go, right? The blessing goes to the offspring, which goes to the church. Where is there kind of like a big gaping gap where we're like wonder, maybe wondering what the point of something is? The law, right? So we come back here to the law and we say... Well, if the promise to bless people was going to come through Jesus, then God, what's the whole idea with this law part? Does that make sense? Does that seem like a, a good question? I want you to keep in mind that the law governed the way that people lived from Moses all the way to Jesus. We're talking about thousands of years. It's a long time, okay? So Paul has to explain the law to the Galatians. He has to explain why did God give this law? So go ahead and look back at your Bibles. Let's look at this. 19. Why the law? So Paul asks the question that they're asking. He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Remember I told you this stuff is kind of hard to understand? <laughs> All right? Um, I read a commentary, and he said, verses 19 and 20, a lot of people would say they have no idea what they mean. Okay? But at least the first half of 19 is helpful, because it says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, who the promise had been made. Or who the promise had been made. What does that mean? It means this. The law had one huge purpose. This is the reason God gave a law for thousands and thousands of years. It was to show that we are sinners who can't be righteous on our own. Why would God give the law? It's so that we would know that we can't make it on our own. That we are not able to live by God's standard. That there's no way for us to live up to what he wants us to live up to. And it cannot make us righteous before God. Well, let's finish reading here this last, last part of the chapter. 
Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What Paul is saying here is this. He is saying that those who believe the promise by faith are real children of God, and those who are under the law, um, I have to read it again. The law acted as their guardian. How many of you guys have seen that line that says, sign this by a parent or a guardian? Now, most of us just have parents, okay? Right? But a guardian is someone who's been entrusted with taking care of you until when? So you're old enough to sign it yourself because you're an adult, right? So that's what a guardian is. So Paul is saying the law is like a guardian that's watching over you. Let's finish this reading and then I'll explain it. Chapter 4, Paul explains what he's saying. I mean that an heir, that's the person who's going to inherit the stuff, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave. That's you guys. You guys are like slaves, okay, as long as you are not 18. Though he is the owner of everything, so your parents will one day let you have what they have, right? Um, although you technically own everything, uh, but you are under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And otherwise, through Jesus, all of us, the Galatians and us included, are heirs of this promise. That God promised to bless Abraham and his offspring. That offspring was Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we are children of God who belong to this promise and this blessing. I thought of an analogy in order to help us understand this. Okay, so Paul's given this correction. Here's a helpful illustration. The law is like Mary Bobbins. Right? Think about Jane and Michael here. They're pretty well off, if you guys remember the movie. Dad's a banker. They've got a lot of money. Do Jane and Michael just have, like, deep pockets with tons of money in them? No, they don't, because they're the children. And Mary Poppins gets to take care of them, and what's her job, really, is to instruct them and bring them up in the right way of living so that someday, when they're an adult, they will know how to conduct themselves when they get their inheritance. But the law can feel like... <laughs> Olaf, right? Okay? Very similar situation, right? 
These two are orphans who have a large inheritance, don't they? They have a lot of money, which is why he killed their parents. Okay? And Olaf is their guardian, their legal guardian, who's taking care of them, and hopefully trying to kill them so that he can get the inheritance. Side story. Okay? The law can feel like this. The law can feel like a prison that we are prisoners to, but in reality, God wasn't giving us the law to make us prisoners. He was giving us the law to be more like Mary Poppins, okay? Because the point of the law was that it was good. It taught us God's laws. It taught us what God values. It taught us what God wants from us. It was necessary, and it was temporary. Now, a thousand years doesn't, a couple thousand years doesn't feel temporary, but it was temporary, okay? Until Jesus was to come. So let's ask this question. What impact should this have on us now? Right, first of all, are there any questions regarding this, or is this, have I made it somewhat clear so you can understand kind of what we're talking about? I think we've done a good job of doing that. So let's talk about you, middle school, high school student, living in Wheaton, Warrenville, Naperville, West Chicago area. Um, what are we supposed to do? Aurora, did I forget anywhere? Winfield, you know, all you. How is this supposed to affect your life, impact your life? Well, let's look at three things real quick. It should impact what we should do. What we should do. Well, what should we do? Well, in light of this passage, we should be incredibly thankful for God's grace. I know that as middle school and high school students, it's oftentimes hard to get outside of your bubble and, and to see life in the big picture. Not just the big picture of the people around you, but in the big picture of history. And to realize that you are incredibly blessed to live in the year 2016. Because not only is it the year that the Cubs are going to win the World Series, but it is also the year that is 2,000 years after Jesus came. So you could have been born in this time when God was teaching everyone you have this law that you cannot attain, that you cannot live up to. You could have lived in an age where you had tons of laws and no hope of actually following all of them. But instead, you live here. You live here where the offspring has been revealed, where you are able to become part of the promise. You guys know that I don't think any of you have Jewish heritage. I don't know, maybe. If you don't, you're Gentiles. And this promise wasn't even available to you. This promise wasn't available to you for 4,000 years. But now that Christ has come, you have the promise of God available to you. You can be a child of God. You can be accepted. You can be counted as Abraham's offspring. Um, so your life, think about this for a second. Your life is radically different than what most of the heroes of the faith experienced. Your life is radically different than Moses' life. Your life is radically better than David's life, Ruth's life, Esther's life, Isaiah's life, Daniel's life. All of these people longed for the day when God would send the promised offspring who would bring about blessing for everybody and not through the law. And you are incredibly blessed to live in the day and age where that has happened. Now, what do we usually do? We should be incredibly thankful to God for letting us live in this time period, but that's not usually what we do, is it? So what do we usually do? 
But we usually ignore God's grace and try to earn our righteousness by following our own laws. How do we do that? Well, we say things like, God could never forgive me for what I've done. We think about our deepest, darkest sins, and we count them as unforgivable. We talk about, here I'm talking about those sins that you hope no one ever finds out about. Ones that you're doing your best to hide from everybody. The ones that you th- make you feel the absolute most shameful about. The ones that you say you can't forgive yourself for. Okay, so we make sins that we say God could not forgive me for these sins. Or we set up our own laws that make us righteous. How many of you feel better about your relationship with God when you've read your Bible and prayed and gone to church? Now, I'm not saying that your relationship is better, but you feel better about it. Yeah, we all do. And what we're doing when we do that is we're making a little law that we follow. And that law says, when I read my Bible and go to church and do my prayers, God loves me more. But that's not true. And how many of us, we apply these laws to other people? Okay, we find out of people who call themselves Christian, and we realize that they don't read their Bibles, or they don't go to church, and we come to the conclusion, well, they must not be saved. They must not really know God. Or we find out about people who do drugs, or go to parties where people are drinking, or have sex before marriage, and we think, well, gee, those people must not be saved. They must not be Christian. God obviously didn't save anyone like that. And when we do that, we're applying a law to those people that God has not applied. Okay, now don't get me wrong. Life is going to be a lot better for those people if they obey God's laws. But we have a tendency to ignore God's grace and to start setting up laws that don't exist and abiding by those laws. And I want you to realize this, that when we do that, that is a slap in God's face. That is an insult to God. When we tell God that we have done sins that God couldn't forgive me for what I've done, we're saying that Jesus' death on the cross, that the nails in his wrists and his feet, that the whips that he endured, that the death that he endured, that the blood that he poured out for us really just wasn't enough. That my sins are so bad that even God himself couldn't forgive those sins. And when we make up laws that suggest that we're righteous and we have a right standing with God only when we read our Bibles and pray and go to church and that other people are really only Christians if they do all these laws, then we're ignoring that Jesus' righteousness was given to us on the cross. And we're saying that Jesus' righteousness wasn't really enough for us, that we have to actually add our own righteousness to it in order to be in right standing with God. Does that make sense? Do you guys, do you see that? Do you see that you, that you live this way? That we all live this way? That we all set up these rules for ourselves? I mean, this is an incredibly freeing thought if you, if you get it. If you get the fact that God's love is not conditional. That his acceptance of you isn't based on your ability to read your Bible or pray. So what do we need to do? Well, here's what we need to do. We need to live life as an accepted child of God and obey him. So I'm not giving you license to just like say, God accepts me. I don't have to do anything anymore. No, we obey him because he has been so good to us and knowing we can do nothing to lose his acceptance of us. 
So what should we do? We should repent of the ways we've insulted God and Jesus' sacrifice by living by our own laws to become righteous. We should recognize that if we've accepted Jesus into our hearts by believing in him, then we are accepted as children of God, and there's nothing we can do to lose that. You can't lose that at all. So stop trying to be righteous or acceptable to God by the stuff that you do. And stop saying that you aren't righteous or acceptable to God because of what you've already done. Know that he sees you only through Jesus and that he has already accepted you, and start living a life that is pleasing to him and obeying his word, not to gain his acceptance, not to gain righteousness, but to know that he's already given it to you. And that you love him so much for forgiving you and showing you this grace that now you want to obey and follow and do everything that he wants you to do. So that's what we need to do. Are there any questions? Does that make sense? Let's ask a couple questions as a group here. What laws have you set up for yourself that either make you feel like you are righteous or make you feel like you are unrighteous? Is there anything that I haven't mentioned that you feel like when I do this or when I don't do this, I tend to, whether or not I believe I'm still righteous, I tend to feel unrighteous when I do these things? Anything come to mind? One second here.